Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 261, We're recording on Saturday, bright and early, May 19th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. It's early. It's early. It ain't bright here, it's though, my friend. Bright. It has been raining mm. in Richmond for approximately one million years. Um, everything is green. I feel like I'm about to be inside annihilation. Oh. Like if the plants grow anymore. Yeah, and like a, like a, like <laughs> a candy cane lush. raccoon with like diamond eyes is going to come start like <laughs> yeah. come attack you or something. I don't even know the movie, yeah, but I know enough about like, Annihilation that that's the kind of thing that would happen there. Yeah. Everything is like so lush. Mm. And I feel like you could watch, like if I walked outside, I could watch the grass grow. <laughs> it's one of those crazy like spring, like heavy spring rain situations. But I'm feeling very Saturday morning. I have my coffee. Mm. I've got my comfy book riot. Be hoodie. honest. It's, it's, it's just a little after 10 there. What time did you get up this morning? Be honest. <laughs> well, um, I woke up. About eight fifteen, but I didn't get out of bed until like nine. That's that's unbelievable. That's <laughs> that's like saying, you know, you know what I had for dinner last <laughs> night? Um, I had crushed up angel bones um, <laughs> mixed with unicorn tears. That, and that you know, just 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 it was just something I whipped together. No big deal. You know, I feel okay about my. That, yeah, I understand. I understand. Uh, anyway, okay. Well, let's get started here. Let's do. We got a sponsor to do, and then yes. you know we got we got news. This is what we do. This is what we do. This is how we do it. Uh, all right. Our first sponsor this week is To Kill a Kingdom by Alexandra Cristo. This is from Fierce Reads. Princess Lyra is siren royalty. With the hearts of 17 princes in her collection, she is revered across the sea until she's forced to kill one of her own. As punishment, the sea queen transforms Lyra into a human. Robbed of her song, Lyra must deliver Prince Elion's heart or remain human forever. The ocean is the only place that Prince Elion calls home. Hunting sirens is more more than a hobby, it's his calling. So when he rescues a woman from drowning and she promises to help him destroy all of siren kind for good, he'll risk anything to protect his people. But can he trust her? This is a dark and murderous Little Mermaid retelling about a siren and the prince whose heart she must literally steal. There's a dual um, point of view story told in alternating chapters, which we all know here is a thing that I can't resist, um, between Princess Lyra, the siren, and Prince Elion, whose heart she's after. And it delves into both characters' backgrounds and moral shades of gray. These are imperfect main characters struggling to move past their biases and do what they they believe is right instead of what they've always been told is right. And Alexandra Cristo is a debut author. This book has a strong, stunning, and occasionally swoony story that pulls no punches and puts a fresh, gritty spin on a familiar tale. So that is To Kill a Kingdom by Alexandra Cristo from Fierce Reads. We've got a follow-up um, of The Bad Place. Bad Place follow-up, I guess, is what we'll call it. Uh, <laughs> Diaz, we talked about, um, continued fallout there, um, resigns as chair of the um, Fiction Pulitzer Committee. 
um, actually, this says it's Pul- chair of the Pulitzer Prize board. It's not. It's board. not clear. Mm-hmm. It's. I'm not clear if each of the awards has their own board or if this is the larger board. I don't know. But there's a link to the show notes, and you can go down that link rabbit hole if you want to. Um, and then the Pulitzer committee or the Pulitzer organization says they're launching an investigation into the accusations of uh, sexual misconduct. Um, I'm not sure there's much else to say here other than the wheels are turning. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, someone asked me on Twitter, I I can't remember, probably one of you listeners out there about, um, is he going to keep his gig at MIT where he's a writing professor? And I would have Assume he's tenured, and one of the things about tenure is it's very difficult to get um, taken away, um, though not impossible. And I said, and this remains true and became more and more true as I thought about it, like, if any of this is about any of his students, that's one of the, that's one of the things that would get it out of there. Um, you know, there's also a social pressure things, like at what point does it become worth it to, to keep rather than go um, for him just in trying to navigate his life, forget about justice mm-hmm. or what's fair, just in terms of like how he chooses to live his life going forward. Um, I think that would be difficult to ascertain who knows where this is going. We are hearing rumblings that there's a lot more out there, um, which is kind of the thing we've learned about these things. Um, mm-hmm. Or I'll say I've learned about these things. Is It's an iceberg situation. Uh, there's a lot more ice under the water. Continues to unfold. Um, there. Yeah, this one uh, feels like it has a real momentum to it, more so than uh, what I felt with Alexi. Mm. Um, I'll say at this point that there was, uh, I think there's a real, I think that behind the scenes, there is a really large group of women who are finding each other um, and are deciding to bring these stories out until something of real consequence happens to Diaz and his career. Um, that the piece that we're looking at about how he has stepped down as the chair of the Pulitzer prize board indicates that also that the Pulitzer prize, um, the board itself has ordered an independent review into the allegations and that though Diaz is stepping down as the chairman, he's going to remain on the board. Um, I guess at least until they conclude their independent review, whatever that means. Um, but the women who are coming forward about him are really coming forward in powerful ways. And there was a piece um, last week on the rumpus mm-hmm. by a woman um, who is telling her side of the story that uh, he alludes to her and to their relationship in the piece that he wrote for the New Yorker. And she is now telling her experience of like a decade long um, off and on relationship with him uh, that is very fraught. We can drop the link into that as well. But it's a really powerful piece. Um, I think because Diaz wrote about his experience and alluded to his, like he wrote about his own trauma and he alluded to um, the trauma that he was aware of having caused other people, but like has not really suffered serious consequences for it yet. There's going to be, all right, well, you told your story and we're going to tell ours now. It seems to me like this is, this ball is rolling and there are a lot of these. Um, And when you, you know, one of the differences that we can see is from the Alexi stuff, a lot of it was people who weren't in positions of power or with access to tell their stories yet. Um, And when Diaz allegedly 
uh, forcibly kissed Zinzi Clemens, she was not yet in a position to do anything about it. But now she certainly is. And I think he's I think his chickens are going to come home to roost is what we're seeing that like many of the women he's had relationships with um, perhaps were not in positions where they had access to publish their sides of the story when the moments occurred, but now they have access and now there are publications who are, who want to listen and to put those forward. So I think especially with Diaz, it's going to get uglier um, before it gets any better. Um, interesting. It's a, it reminds me a little bit. And um, if you were wondering why we didn't make a bigger deal out of the Nobel prize being canceled last week, it's because we did a whole episode of annotated about it. Oh, and right. it reminds me and go listen to that. Uh, we had um, one of our uh, writers, Eric Kern has been following it, who is from Sweden, who has a PhD in I think literature, I'm pretty sure, but I'm not sure which. And then Emily Ringborg. Hi, Emily. I'm sure uh, you, you're, you're probably listened to that episode already. Um, who's also, who lives in Sweden as a librarian in Stockholm talk to us about you know what's going on there. We did some of our research too, but it strikes me that there's a parallel here um, insofar as both both boards had a problematic person you know related to them, and they both launched these investigations. What's interesting about this one is that it's it seems to be happening. We're, we're getting public signals about what's going on, right? Whereas yeah. in the Nobel Committee, the, the committee members resigned basically out of frustration that no one knew what was happening. They had no power. The they're trying to sweep it under the proverbial rug, as it were. Um, but this kind of, this thing now is happening in real time. And one of the things I think Emily said in that show is like, Me Too, the Me Too movement has come to Sweden, and she doesn't think that, that the Nobel story would have happened without whatever it is you want to call the groundswell, the empowerment, the different kind of attention. I'm not even sure. I'm sure in, someone's going to, when we're, I hope in my lifetime, write a really good cultural history of this ongoing yes. moment and because it's not clear to me what the factors are um i have my theories but i'm not enough an expert in it you know to know but whatever else is going there has given women the i don't know the 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 social capital um the connection to each other um increased places of power to amplify this i mean it could be in any number of things right i mean who knows but mm-hmm. that is different now because there were allegations against this dude in, in Sweden in like 20 years ago, like not that different. Yeah. But there is something different now um, and seeing it, how it plays out in real time. And I think there's going to be pressure on these universities, on these organizations to do these, to react in the right way. And I think what's interesting is we don't know what the right way is now because my first thought was like, just get him out of there. Like, what do you, why is he still, mm-hmm. okay, he's resigned. Why is he still on there? But it's like, Okay, well, if they actually do an independent review and it's honest and open and not stacked, the deck isn't stacked against anybody, like it's it's sort of fair, then you decide what to do after that. I guess that's right. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, but I guess that's where we are. We're, we're figuring that part out too. Um, yeah, you know, it's. I think that these independent review situations have often a lot to do with legal yes, stuff right. and liability. Um, I, I don't know if I mentioned it on this show or if it was just a, another time you and I were talking, but um, I've, I was on a training call with, right. yes. our, with our company's law firm um, and a bunch of other you know companies that they sort of people wear the HR hats um, for various companies about when when me too started happening about what how to protect your company from uh, issues around this and then how to respond to it if you have reports of um sexual assault or sexual harassment in the workplace and conducting your own review um your own investigation is 
like a centerpiece of that. But the thing that um, these like big fancy attorneys were saying on that call is it's still really, really hard because in most in in most cases, there is no or very little evidence because these are things that occur in, you know, in intimate private moments between people. So you might like, maybe you can, you have emails or text messages or, uh, stuff that was sent on the company Slack or, or something like that. But in many cases, um, you're talking about a moment that happened between like in the case of Zenzi Clemens here, a moment that happened like in the dark Mm. corner of a bar, um, where you have to decide who you believe. And it seems to me that there are going to be that there are going to be that there already are enough stories about Diaz that to ignore like a a pile of women who telling stories that are very similar uh, in nature because there's no evidence um, would be very problematic. Um, And so I guess sort of related into that moves us into this next Mm -hmm. piece of follow-up. We talked a while ago um, about how David Fenza, who was the longtime executive director of AWP, which is the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, they also throw a big annual conference where people who are looking like to get into MFA programs are writers who are looking to get agented, uh, go for professional education and development and networking. He was fired in March after like 20 years, yeah, something like time. that. And um, we were wondering, you know, it, it felt like a smoking gun at the time, but there was no real indication of why he was fired all of a sudden. Um, but it now looks as though uh, there's evidence of a hostile work environment um, and some complaints that were filed going way back about him and other yeah. people that the the man who has the most complaints against him, those go back years and years. Um, but people inside AWP, we're not doing anything about it. And the where we've hit this moment, as you were saying, where women have connections to each other and access to tell these stories, but also where the systems that have heard these complaints and still continue to protect these men or not wanted to deal with public scandals or for whatever reason they haven't addressed the complaints, um, that, that silence is no longer acceptable. You know, um, I've made this parallel uh connection before in the show i always think about it because i you know spotlight the movie that came out a few years ago one of my i mean it's weird to say it's one of my favorite modern movies because of the subject matter but this way it's told the way it's done i keep coming back to to thinking about how they pulled off that movie but one of the things that strikes me is that they the stories that don't get told about these things is kind of how does it happen like how does it happen that an organization like this because you, you kind of see it at the end, and you're like, years worth of formal grievances. Like, is mm-hmm. it a fraud? Like, is it is it if you, is it is that you sweep the first one under the rug that then you sort of have to sweep all subsequent? Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, how does this go yeah. down exactly? Like, because it seems impossible at the end to say this is what you did. Like, it seems impossible, and maybe they're monsters. I don't know, but I also think there's the, the other side is like. Things people do things for reasons, and how did just how like how did it happen? And, and I don't mean that rhetorically, like it's impossible. Like clearly it did. Clearly this happens in a lot of different systems and structures and organizations, and there has to be some sort of I don't know enabling justification, or it becomes a thing where this is what we do, this is who we are. If we were to change course now, the whole thing would be crumbling. Would come tumbling down, but it couldn't have been that at the very first one, 
would have caused the whole thing to come. It's like a reverse house of cards almost. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't even know how to. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Like, how does this? How does the structure com, come to function this way? I guess that's what I'm trying to it answer. Is, yeah. It is mind-boggling. Um, I think the outside the world of publishing, the biggest one that I've seen right now is what went on with the U.S. gymnastics. Right. Yeah, team. yes. And that there are like hundreds yeah. of hundreds of claims against a man who had to have been protected by many, many right. people because it it has now come out that um, you know he has been convicted of many things and there the investigations into the people who protected him are the thing that are happening now. Um, that's a much bigger version of like what we saw with Paterno right. several yeah. years And Weinstein too, to some degree that, as well, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, um, that you can, right. You can imagine what the first moment is like maybe of, Oh, this is, this would be a really big, bad deal. Mm-hmm. What do we do about it? And I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how you could, you know, be inside an organization that has decades of complaints, dozens of complaints against a person and not do anything about it other than if you're very perhaps afraid of the person that the complaints are against or you don't feel that you have enough power to pursue it. Um, Systems get so messed up. I have a friend right now who's being harassed by a person at work and she can't go to the HR director because the HR director has also been harassing her. (laughs) And it like those are that's a small scale horrible situation um but it happens i think inside so many places but i, I agree i don't I, I agree that people have reasons in yes, their head right. the, there's there are there are ways that people justify protecting um assail protecting assailants protecting sexual harassers protecting men particularly in these situations that are doing horrible things for many many years and they they come to what f- must feel like a real justifiable reason for doing it but i don't know how you get there and i don't know how you maintain yeah. it like are they waking decades. up like are they or waking up i mean metaphorically waking up and start, do they have a moment of clarity during all this of like oh no oh no oh look what we've i mean it doesn't feel that way i mean maybe they're doing it in the long dark night of the soul you know at, at 2 a.m when they're unable mm-hmm. to sleep my best theory is something like this is that when the first thing happens that gets brought to mind, like it's your boss, your friend, your colleague, whatever, you can create a, like like you said, there is no evidence a lot of times, you can create a story which is, you know, this is my friend, I'm going to cover for them, or I can give them the benefit of the doubt, or he has a different story. You sweep that one under the rug. And I think that sort of is the... I think it, it it allows a moral opening to create a narrative about all subsequent things, or oh, and mm-hmm. or, well, now that I've swept one, I got to keep sweeping because if I don't sweep this one, they're yep. going to find out I swept the other one, and now you're now yep. you're implicated almost you feel or are or whatever as implicated as the person doing the thing. So I think yeah, it's it, there's the cover yeah. up, then there's the cover up, right? Of the cover yeah, up. right. Like it's almost <laughs> like if you don't make the the right decision the first or second or you know early in the process, mm-hmm. it's a tar baby, um, and you're stuck. Yeah, and, and and to get out of it would be the right thing to do, but the consequences would be so mind bogglingly terrible that you you'd rather choose to keep keep the broom out. I guess I guess that's what how it's supposed mm-hmm. to how it work. Anyway, Whew. there's that. Um, so I, I think we said early in the, our discussions of, of these things that it's an easy narrative, I think, to say there's individual monsters out there, 
Right. Which we know there are bad mm-hmm. actors out there. I think for me, the harder thing, the more nettlesome thing, the more the thing that uh, it's less clear to me how will be fixed is all of the things that w- that went on to enable, protect, obfuscate, intimidate, um, or otherwise eradicate the 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 consequences for those people. All all the all the legal structures involved, mm-hmm. all the corporate structures involved, all the individual moral, ethical, self preservation choices involved. I think that's the thing that if if you're one of those people that's like it's not a real you know if you have a hard time understanding sort of structural sexism and structural bias and prejudice this is a really clear case study in how those things happen and it's not it's not theoretical it's not hand wavy like this is how it happens um and the Nobel episode we did about annotated shows too how structural problems get amplified when like there's a crisis right that's another thing mm-hmm. that goes on is like what is the mechanism for getting rid of someone oh you can't well great now what do we like you're sort of <laughs> yeah. you know like i think there's some things and frankly too it's, i'm glad you brought up that um you know I was it right after the Weinstein one, Rebecca, where we were like, what are our, like, we didn't have policies in place. Um, right. I mean, there's some structures about our company that gives us a little bit more protection again, just because we all work remotely, we, you know, it's whatever. But we're like, crap, we, we, we need to make sure we're doing the right thing here. Um, and you can see how that bylaws and covering CYA legal things can make mm-hmm. you, can incentivize you in weird ways, I guess is all I'm trying to say about that. Yeah, it's, it is strange. They, and the gaps of things that are results of failure of imagination, yeah. really, like we, you know, we have some lines in company handbooks about expected behavior between colleagues, and we would certainly pursue anything related to illegal behavior but because we all work remotely we all spent we spend very little right. time in the same physical space it wasn't something that we had to think much about but it also led to a lot of conversations um and you and I have talked about this so much privately um about how like to me I think and I I feel pretty comfortable on behalf of the women of the company the bigger risk is um interactions with people outside yeah. our company within the industry right. because we are aware of the whisper network we do know and it gave me pause to look back like I've been in publishing now for 10 years um I have had experiences with men in powerful situations in publishing like nothing that rose to the level of assault but certainly interactions that I wasn't comfortable with and at the time did not know what to do about those. Um, but that's some of them occurred while I was like wearing my book riot hat. Um, and it had, I think it speaks to how common small experiences are that it hadn't occurred to me to try to like do something about those. Um, if they happened tomorrow in the moment that we're in right now in culture, I think Mm -hmm. that I, I would. Um, but it also gave us a moment of like, what do we do if, a woman that we've sent into a, a you know professional situation, a party or a meeting at a publishing house or something, um, has an encounter like this. What? How can how can we address right. that? And that was a question that we hadn't had to deal with before. Um, but it's it is just everywhere. Uh, yeah. um, it really is just yeah. Okay. Um, so there we All go. Right. That, that's our twenty minute follow up about uh, what's going on there. A more follow up. Uh, we talked about the one b- 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 billion dollar uh, <laughs> oh, that boy. Amazon is throwing down for 
the rights to do basically what it will with the Lord of the Rings <laughs> franchise. And news came this week, um, and I guess maybe a brief spoiler warning, you know, advance two minutes here, uh, if you care. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, the the rumors. I don't think we've got confirmation that the series will focus on a young Aragorn. So for those of you who don't mm-hmm. know, maybe the ins and outs of the the Tolkien canon or whatever. You know, Aragorn was played by Viggo Mortensen in the in the movies. Soon will be the king of Gondor and blah blah blah. But like, has been around for a while. Um, he was a hundred mm-hmm. and some odd years old at the time of the movies take place, and so this is sometime before the action that initiates in the Lord of the Rings series makes me less interested in this myself. I hate prequels. I've never read a prequel that I loved um, or seen one. Like I, I, I just can't think of one. Like the one, the only one that can come to mind that I even tolerated was the prequel sections of the Godfather part two. But so much of that movie also moves the action forward. Like that prequel flashbacks move the, the present story going forward. I just don't like it. I feel Again, maybe I'm wrong. Well, no, I'm not wrong about how I feel about prequels, but may- maybe there's a lot of people out there that like prequels. I guess you're pinning the tail on the donkey of what you think people are interested in. Like, it's not only Lord of the Rings, but also this is a character we know. I guess there's some other stuff in the Tolkien canon that you could use. Um, but there you go. I-, I guess I understand it, but I'm not interested in this. This this, this drops my interest level by 9%. <laughs> Just 9? Yeah, I keep a, I, you know, I keep a notebook, Rebecca. <laughs> It's very, it's very yeah. precise, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I also don't care. Um, I think this is one of the potentially like more interesting ways they could have gone than some of the other ones. It, they note that uh, this isn't going to be like a retelling of Lord of the Rings all from, or of, you know, the War right. of the Ring moments from Aragorn's uh, particular perspective. It's going to be based on material from the appendices and the, the appendices um, are so rich with oh material. Like, Tolkien just... Tolkien just did the most. He wrote, he like wrote uh, and... fan. He, he <laughs> Tolkien wrote Tolkien fan fiction. That's that's my best way of under, explaining how much stuff there is and like how weird and yeah. incomplete and like he yeah. really did. So they can Amazon can go so many places with this. If this is a world you like to dwell in, you're going to be just fine. Like when it comes to Aragorn, I would watch like the. Just, you know, basically a reality show about Aragorn, just with Viggo Mortensen, like getting up in the morning and brushing his teeth or whatever you do when you're a ranger in Looking wistfully at Liv Tyler, you know. Yes, yeah, he just looks wistful, like plays catch in the front yard with his kid because now i'm doing lord of the rings field of yeah dreams right you, you, you throw the old, you're throwing the swords <laughs> around throwing the knives around you know washing the goblets in the morning uh you know making the mead doing all the things you do as um the king you know a down-to-earth king of gondor just, just being dreamy. i went old just i went aragorn. old aragorn because then you get vigo like you know that's what i'm saying get old you want, aragorn. like Aragorn, like writing his uh, Reverend Ames letters. Oh, there you go, <laughs> writing to my my immortal elvish half son, my half elvish son. Th- think of how fraught that would be. Well, son, you're going to live forever. I've got <laughs> some. I got some life lessons for your first 190 years that I experienced. <laughs> Good luck with all that existential. Th- stuff. Think of the therapy. <laughs> think think of the therapy that being immortal would entail. So what we're doing think here of how, is... Think of how many therapists you'd have to have. Oh, God. you got to find a new therapist every hundred years. God, what a drag. Can we get Marilyn Robinson to write 
Tolkien fan fiction. <laughs> you know, now, now I'm interested. Plus 18%. Interest up. Plus 18% uh, right there. <laughs> That's, I feel very proud of you myself. Know, anyway, old Aragorn <laughs> and his therapist uh, and his immortal... Is a mortal half elf son. Uh, okay, let's let's go on to our next sponsor before we get to I guess actually not non follow up news um, here. It's PRH Audio. Do you need something for your next book club meeting? You could listen to it. So try. Have you tried listening? Speaking of therapy, Penguin Random House mm-hmm. Audio has the book for you. Need a beach read? Listen hands free to titles like The High Season by Judy Blundell and The Best Beach Ever by Wendy Wax. Like beach reads about the beach. I like this. I like this. Whenever I go on vacation to like someplace next to water, I like to read water books. Um, mm. The biggest mistake I ever read was reading The Perfect Storm on Cape Cod, which was basically oh. like a horror show. Anyway, <laughs> visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for a free audiobook download of Blood Kiss by J.R. Ward and start listening today. I don't know if you heard that. That is a free audiobook download of a book called The uh, not the, just Blood Kiss. No definite article uh, by J.R. Ward. Go to tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for that deal. Thanks to PRH Audio for sponsoring this week. You know, if you want to start thinking about a little way ahead, just into June, into Ooh, your summer reading and okay. listening, pre, Jeff, a pre A prereq. I've been... A prereq, I have been meaning to tell you about this because it is a literal get the band back together. Oh, okay, book. yes. Um, that I read. We're just going to do this for a minute because I need to talk about books and sure. like cleanse yeah, my brain from the, from the top of the show. So The Ensemble by Asia Gable uh, is coming out from, I believe it's Riverhead in June. And it is a book about the members of a like very fancy string quartet that forms the quartet forms when they are like just out of college and then they play together for many years and there are love affairs between them and fights and the stories rotate between the the four quartet members perspectives over the course of many years and it is great Mm -hmm. i'm what give me the title again i didn't have my pen out it's called it's called the ensemble okay by asia gable uh, and I read it, I read it when I was, I had a crazy April and I read it while I was traveling and was just like, oh, this is great. And it's basically a literal band that is together and then not together. And then they, you get, you know, decades of their life. It's wonderful. Um, we got to do, I mean, I hate to, to relay news of when authors die, though it does give us a moment to to look at their lives with clear eyes and or or you know a different kind of appreciation this week um, most of you probably heard that Tom Wolfe passed away at the age of eighty eight um, he had had an affection apparently was hospitalized um, and you know it's one of those things i don't know I, I want to know if you have any personal thoughts feelings experience with Tom wolf repertoire I, I guess I would say I, I I did for a while, as as a lot of kids who grew up nerdy, you know, you go through your period of reading the authors you think you're supposed to read. Um, and I did my Tom Wolfe, you know, month of The Right Stuff, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, uh, uh, The Tangerine One, which I can never get this, the name right, Bonfire of the Vanity, so on and so forth. And I I have to admit, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm not 
don't feel guilty about it. I really was blown away at the first time. You can kind of imagine a 16-year-old kid living in Kansas, you know, reading about hippies dropping LSD and driving, you know, buses around and like, you know, fighter pilots trying to go into space <laughs> for the first time, which is one of those things where you and I, you're younger than I am, but sort of not dissimilar generation. You grew up, we'd already been, not by a we'd already lot. been to the moon, right? Like that was already done. Right. But to think about like these dudes, they're like, I guess we're going to try space now. And then, you know, like it was, he, he did really find fascinating stories, the style, you know, you all know new journalism things, but he was a contrarian of his own way. Like I think one, I guess what I'm trying to circle down to is sometimes these, these canonical authors become sort of totems of themselves. And it's mm-hmm. hard to look at what they actually did, both good and bad without sort of just seeing the suit. I was even making a joke on last week's show that, um, Gregory Peck in um, To Kill a Mockingbird looked like Clark Kent wearing Tom Wolfe's clothes. And, you know, mm-hmm. becoming, becoming what's interesting about that in my mind, I was thinking about this week, someone brought us like, you were just making a joke about Tom Wolfe. like, well, I was really paying him homage because he's a totemic enough figure that he, he and Clark Kent were available to me right. in my mind, right? Like, that's kind of amazing. And that you forget, I think, that Tom Wolfe started dressing like Colonel Sanders in 1968, like it was a contrarian move in 1968, right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone's around bell bottoms and you know long beards. He looked like he stepped out of the Great Gatsby, um, yeah. Which I think is fascinating, but it, it, you know it kind of calcified over time. I think to be sort of a cliche, a joke about Tom Wolfe. He couldn't react to his own reaction weirdly, which I think is a thing that is uh, not uh, unique to Mr. Wolfe himself. But the the books the books sparkle, man. Like that's true. Like I was going back and looking at electric Kool Aid acid tests. Like the books sparkle. He's so influential. This kind of journalism where you get embedded, quote unquote, with the thing you're doing. You become part of the story. You use novelistic technique, narrative nonfiction, really, as we know it, um, was in no small part invented catalyzed by Wolf, Hunter S. Thompson, and, and that generation, Joan Didion, I'd put in there as well, who is still around, I should say. Um, so, uh, you know, in some of the things we know, Radical Chic, The Me Decade, y- y- those are things that are part of cultural vocabulary, taxonomy, and that's not nothing. So, I don't know, if you've never read Tom Wolf, I'm not saying you got to run out and read Tom Wolf. I guess it's one of those things where it got it shook me out of my Tom Wolf complacency a little bit. Say, oh, yeah, you know what? Appreciate this work, you know, and warts and all. And he definitely had his warts, especially the later work. Like I tried to get through the what is the language world or the world of language. Like God, this is so obtuse. But anyway, but that doesn't mean that the earlier work still doesn't stand. So that that's me uh, and Tom Wolf. I don't know if you have anything else to add about that. I was going to ask you because I've not read Tom oh. Wolfe and I've spent, I have spent most of my bookish career getting Tom Wolfe and Tom Robbins confused. And it's always like, which one is the one in the white mm-hmm. suit? Um, so now I'm clear on that, but I mean, where I, I, I think, I, I think electric Kool-Aid acid test, both, both for the, how he pulls it off, but then also for the subject matter. Um, mm. If you don't like that, maybe you don't like Tom Wolf. Like I remember, because A Man in Full came out when I was in college, which was a huge commercial success, and it was like one of these sprawling social novels. Um, I think it was about a football star. There was a couple because American Pastoral came out around the same time, which was not a dissimilar subject matter about like oh, that's you know kind of yeah. um, a, a former athlete turned you know, successful upper middle class rich person and then they're unraveling. Um, so that was a moment, interestingly, that happened in the 90s. 
and that was that that sort of was the end, the the apotheosis, the crescendo. I don't know the climax of the Wolfian career. But I would, I, it was good, but I feel like it's dated now. Um, but I think Electric Kool Aid Acid Test as a work holds up. And I think it will be kind of surprising if you haven't read Wolf to see what it actually is. And it's short. That's the other thing. Wolf could get super long, but the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test is, test is not super long. So that's, that's my rec if you want to see what the Tom Wolf um, idiom is really all about there. Well, thank yeah. you. It's interesting too. I was thinking too, like it's wild that you know. I think about my my grandparents' generation and the people who were alive while they were alive. Like, really, uh, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald was alive when you were twenty one. That seems insane. But now, you know, my kids, <laughs> right. my grandkids are going to be like, wait, Harper Lee was alive when you were like thirty. You know, and like Tom Wolfe was alive. Anyway, it, it, such as like the generation, like like the passing of seasons. So is the generation of men. As Homer said, um, that's how these things go. All right. After that, now now we're on to just regular old Jeff and Rebecca news stuff. So where do you regular old where do you news. want to go from here? Let's let's talk about Waterstones. Man. I thought this was fascinating. So, I'm glad you put this in here. I didn't know if this was going to rise to the level of your interest, and this was just Jeff nerd. Yeah, stuff. I think this is interesting too. Um, so Waterstones, the big UK book selling chain, has been accused of breaking a pledge not to open what are basically unbranded stores in areas that already have independent bookshops. Um, the, the, I guess Waterstones had said they're not going to try to compete with yeah. indies, um, but it appears that they actually are. Um, there's They have plans to expand in Edinburgh uh, to open Stockbridge Books in uh, the city Stockbridge suburb next spring. Um, and they've already opened Golden Hair, or sorry, Golden Hair Books is the independent mm. bookstore um, that's, that is in... Um, that's in Edinburgh. And Julie Danskin is the manager of Golden Hair Books. She said that she and other indie bookstores had been in touch to share their disappointment that Waterstones is going to be opening a store in the area. Uh, They can see why Waterstones wants to be in the area, but that the store is not going to be branded Waterstones. It's going to be called Stockbridge Books. Um, They, I guess they feel like that's a not entirely honest presentation of what this store is and that instead of presenting itself as giant chain bookstore, it's trying to dress itself up uh, as indie store um, in order to compete with the local indie stores. Uh, masquerading as an independent bookshop is the sentence that's been used here. Golden Hair Books has been in Stockbridge for four years. Um, it's owned by Mark Jones, who's an art historian and the former director of the Victoria and Albert Museum. And uh, now they are calling for public support to take on Waterstones. I don't know if this is going to be an unpopular opinion or what. I think this is smart of Waterstones. Now, I, whatever handshake deal they had with independent bookstores, um, we talked last week about, or it was just last week. We've talked thousands of times about <laughs> Barnes and Noble. Oh, so and many! In our podcast chat on um, Book Ride Insider, shout out to insiders. Um, I asked, you know, what, if you were the CEO of Barnes and Noble, wh- and you for five minutes and could make one decision, what you would do? We talked about a lot of things, but one of the things that's come up, and I think we've talked about this before, is a line of unbranded Barnes and Nobles that have you know look and talk like the duck of an independent bookstore mm-hmm. was something is something to try. Like I think this is smart. Now maybe it's 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 dirty pool to go next door to to an, an authentic quote unquote independent bookstore, 
But outside of that particular implementation detail, I think this is super smart to do. Yeah. Yeah. We're both going to be unpopular here. Okay. Um, Because I think the only bad decision here was making a pledge in the first place. (laughs) That you weren't going to (laughs) keep. Don't make the pledge. Now you look worse. The cover, like you said, the cover up is worse. Yeah. Um, like I don't know the whole background, but why? Yeah. Like, what does water? What is Waterstones doing in the first place? Pledging not to compete with independent bookstores. Like, right. You exist in the same space, functionally competing for the same book buying dollars. You you're competing already. Um, mm-hmm. That's and when you run a company, that's your job is to compete and figure out, you know, how to get more. And I guess in the age of Amazon, they might be looking for some PR opportunities to be like, we don't want to take Indies out of business. We want a rich and varied book buying economy, whatever. Um, But it seems to me like making that pledge in the first place was not wise um, because now you look bad for Mm -hmm. breaking it. And we have, we have talked about this for years of wanting to see what would happen if Barnes and Noble created some smaller stores that looked more like Indies. Um, Perhaps it comes across as bad faith to the customer that like if you're just noodling around Edinburgh and you don't know um, which bookstore is is truly an independent bookstore and which is actually owned by Waterstones, if you are a customer who cares about the difference, I guess you might feel, you know, like one got pulled over on you. If, it, if you thought that you were noodling around Stockbridge books and giving your dollars to the local economy and instead you were giving them to a, um, to a giant corporation. But that also, I think, falls to the – it's the consumer's job. If you care about figuring out which bookstore is independent so you can give your dollars to it, it's your yeah. job to figure it out. Um, and that's basically where I am on that. I'm interested to see Waterstones, I think, innovates in interesting ways. And they do. We've talked about um, – what is it, Indigo in Canada, Mm -hmm. that also innovates in interesting ways. And there are things that Barnes & Noble could learn from that. If if Barnes & Noble is to hang around, I wonder, like I've been thinking about this kind of all week and I should have asked our indie bookseller friend when I was Mm -hmm. hanging out with him earlier this week, but I wonder what like Oren Tyker at the ABA would say about this if Barnes & Noble were doing it because he is quoted as wanting Barnes & Noble to stay around. We talked about that last week that um, the health of Barnes & Noble seems now tied to the health of independent bookstores within the larger picture of the industry. And so if this were going on in the US, if Barnes & Noble were opening Richmond Books uh, here in town, would the local independent bookstores be mad? Would the American Booksellers Association be mad? Or would it would would it be seen differently? I wonder. Um, also, Barnes and Noble has never made a stupid pledge not to do a thing like this. <laughs> well, a couple of things you said got me thinking. Like the one thing, one utility function of Amazon, especially for a chain like Barnes and Noble or Waterstones, is that you're no longer the big bad wolf. Mm. So that can give you cover to do things that in sort of 1995 you would have liked, like a big bad bully, because mm-hmm. you can say at least we're not Amazon, right? We're right. we're in we're in the good fight here um, against the big A. The second thing is. If it looks like a duck and walks like a duck as an independent bookstore, like if it does all the things that we said, like go back to annotated episode two, like how did independent bookstore mm-hmm. survive? Say it does all of those things, save be owned by a bigger company. What's the problem? And mm-hmm. I don't mean that rhetorically. I mean that honestly, like are you defrauding someone? Like if you're doing the local events, if you're hiring people from the community and like all those, all those sorts of things that you know make an independent bookstore not just sort of a corporate structure that's different from a different corporation – then, then do we care? Email, email us podcast at yes. bookride.com. I'd, I'd honestly like to know, like, if there if there were a chain, or, you know, 
I don't even know what you, they wouldn't even be changed, but if there were a bunch of Barnes and Noble corporately owned bookstores that each had a different name and all did all hit the 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 right notes on the independent bookstore keyboard is that is that good is that okay for you and for me i'm saying especially now i think that's good i think you would be dumb a little bit if you're barnes and noble to go where other bookstores are that are mm-hmm. independent like go to you know, the ABA says that there are plenty of places out there that need an independent bookstore and could support one. Go there first, and I guess come back to these other places later. Maybe these are the most, you know, where Waterstones has identified the most lucrative zip codes or whatever. I'm sure they've done their homework. But like, don't lead with don't lead with your chin of going right up against independence right away. Like, go try this in a place that needs like Ditmas Park in Brooklyn, my old neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not a bookstore around. No, no one would care that you you're competing that you're you're not in quote unquote true independent you're not the, the last honest man or whatever they just be glad to have and it would work there start there and then see what happens um anyway i'd like to hear what people think about this i think it's smart i'd love to see barnes and noble do it i would prefer if they didn't do it right next door to an independent right. bookstore for optics reasons but also like i like independent bookstores too sure and it, it, I guess I'd ask you, Rebecca, like, let's say they did all the walking and talking like a duck of an independent bookstore, but weren't. Like, what what am I missing? Or what 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 might that be missing that sort of a, a true independent bookstore? Mm, well, the being owned by someone from within the community. You know, that, like, that would be the one. Yeah, that's, that's the, the one. one. That's the that's the one. That's the and it's a big one. Yeah, you know it is. I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to diminish that, but that that's yeah. the big one, right? But that's the one. Yeah. yeah. That the if I think it would be interesting. And if you live in Edinburgh and you want to go to Stockbridge Books when it opens, um, check it out and let us know because yeah. I think it's it's tough to develop an experience that feels like an indie bookstore experience outside of an indie bookstore because you run into like crazy corporate structures and incentives. Yeah, so, right. right you know, like when right. when I was at Barnes and Noble, almost well n- more than a decade ago now. Um, they were doing what they called make books on the inside where it was like Barnes and Noble wants to be able to claim that the reason this book became a bestseller is because of Barnes and Noble hand selling. And I have no idea if this is a thing they still do in Barnes and Noble, but there was like a title that somebody in Barnes and Noble's corporate structure got excited about and they encouraged as many of the booksellers as possible to read it. And then we were encouraged to try to steer customers toward that title um, Mm. anytime that we could. And walking that line, like there are, it was a book that was appealing to a wide audience. So you could honestly hand sell it to a lot of people, but walking the line of honestly hand selling it because it was a good recommendation for them and then hand selling it because there were like corporate incentives to do that right. um, is the kind of thing that you're not going to run into in an, in, in a truly independent bookstore, like where they don't have, um, they don't have a reason to do that. You're, I think you can trust the recommendations uh, that you're getting because they're not backed by, there's no suspicion that they're backed by some kind of other agenda. Um, So that's, I think that's big too. But if you can walk into this Waterstones owned, but indie looking situation and get like a great authentic interaction with a bookseller who listens to you and knows what you're looking for Mm -hmm. and gives you good recommendations and like remembers you and your kid's name when you go back in there, like that's, that is the, 
really, I think the core of the experience that people want to have, and maybe that's an important distinction to make is there's the experience of being in an indie bookstore. And then there are like the socio-political reasons Mm -hmm. for supporting independent bookstores. And if you're an experienced person or that's more valuable to you, you could maybe get that at um, a tiny store owned by a big company. If you are in it for the socio-political stuff primarily, then you're going to want to find your truly independent store. Yeah, I don't know. Now that you say it, I wonder if the, the 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 ownership thing isn't as neatly divisible from the experiential thing because the decisions that Waterstones would make about how to run these things mm. would trickle away all the way down to the sales floor about yeah. how things are sold and who's hired and what because sure. the, the ownership question is not just that people are local, but they have a different kind of investment in the store working than even a full-time manager of a Barnes & Noble, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they, they do different things. They'll work extra hours rightly or wrongly, but there's a different kind of quote-unquote investment in the experience of that store that could be adulterated by not having local ownership yeah. that that has secondary effects that aren't exactly about the financial ownership, but about the stakes, the relationship of the people running mm-hmm. it to the store. So I, I wonder, if you're Waterstones and you're trying to actually replicate something like an independent bookstore experience, you probably have to, to do it well. You have to change how you manage that store versus the other stores, yeah, I would think. I, I would think, think so. it would be necessary. Yeah, you'd have to give up you'd have to give up some of the big pieces of corporate control in yeah. favor of like local flavor and personality. Like independent bookstores all have their own personalities and their sets of values and the ways that they like to do things. And um my friend Josh, who owns print in Portland, Maine, we were um talking this week about like their store is explicitly political and yeah, that's a, that right, is a cho- yes. like that is a choice that they have made to you know do i think what it was the Tanahasi Coates book um a percentage of the proceeds went to an organization in Charlottesville that supported black educators they've done events that support the ACLU um Josh and his business partner Emily Russo um both you know, use their staff picks and their hand selling opportunities in the store and the Mm. authors that they book into events. Like all of these things reflect what their values are as individuals and their values as business owners, but it trickles down to their booksellers who then are encouraged to share those values. Their own, like the bookseller staff picks also reflect a progressive perspective and they're embedded in their local community Mm. in that way. And that's a unique thing among the bookstores in like, there are several independent bookstores in uh, Portland. And this is one of the things that makes print unique is this particular perspective that they've taken. And I think you can't get there in a small bookstore owned by a large corporation if you carry in all of the big concerns that corporations have yep. about That's right. politics and perspective. Like the the goal of chains is to give a consistent experience. Um, you know, like that you're the chicken McNuggets are the same. That's in, right. That's right. In every That's McDonald's. Um and that that goes to like deep control of minute details and indies work when they work because of different kinds of priorities, not about mm. replicating the same flavor across. So Waterstones, I think you're right, would have to they would have to decide that the principles that apply to Waterstones bookstores are not necessarily the same principles that apply to this smaller thing they're doing mm-hmm. um, and how to give more local control to these stores so that they can reflect the communities that they're in and serve those particular interests. Yeah, that's true. 
Um, interesting. We'd like to hear your opinion. I don't think this is the last time we'll hear about. I'm guessing no. we're going to get some feedback about this. Just you know, having done the show for a while, this people the kind have of some thing. feelings about people independent will have thoughts. Yeah, uh, that's our show this week. Uh, you could go find the show notes to this and all episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com/slash/listen. If I didn't say it a thousand times already, our email is podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, we will talk to you next week. Thank you guys so much, Rebecca. Talk to you later. Yeah, have a good one.